We're going to start today's episode off with a sound. If you grew up in the United States, you can probably tell that this is the sound of a school bus idling as it picks up children on its route. It's a scene that repeats itself tens of thousands of times a day, all across the US and the world. All right, so I'm gonna start the electric bus now. But in the not too distant future, that sound could be replaced by this. No, you don't need to adjust the volume. And you hear no engine noise whatsoever. There's really not much to hear, which is the point. Because the buses are so quiet, as an added safety feature, when the bus drops below 20 miles per hour, it actually has a noisemaker that comes on so that when you're pulling up to bus stops or traffic signals or, or just going slow in general, pedestrians can hear you coming. That's Todd Watkins. He's the director of transportation for Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland, which happens to be the 14th largest school district in the United States. And they're doing something pretty bold. They decided to completely change their fleet of 1,400 buses to electric in the next 14 years. This is the largest electric bus purchase and electrification plan that we know about to date in the school bus industry. I think they're the perfect vehicle for it. You know exactly how far they're going to go every day. You know where they're going to come and park all night to be charged. And this one change for this one county could have a massive impact, not just because of what it will do for emissions in Maryland, but because it also will help large school districts across the country see the benefits of converting to electric. So I think we're going to see this sweep across the school bus industry in a way that I've never seen a technology sweep over the industry. I am feeling like we're doing our part to be part of the climate change solution. And probably through seeing all of this with our electric bus deal and, and what's happening and all the people I've interacted with, I've actually become much more aware of, of the environmental issue. Welcome to Heat of the Moment, a podcast about the climate crisis and the people trying to solve it. I'm John Sutter. Converting to electric vehicles is an important part of the quest to eliminate carbon pollution and stabilize the atmosphere. It's estimated that globally, the transportation sector contributes about one-fifth of all greenhouse gas emissions. Three-quarters of that comes from road travel. That means converting to electric vehicles and powering them with clean energy presents an enormous opportunity for reducing CO2 pollution. And while the current state of producing electric vehicles and batteries can be improved on, there is broad consensus that electric vehicles are essential to the fight against global warming. It's not just CO2 emissions that are on people's minds when they think about converting. It's also clean air and sound pollution. There's also the economic potential. That was all on the mind of Sassiranga da Silva. He's an engineer and professor based in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has a population of just under 22 million. And to get around, many of its citizens use the approximately 1.3 million tuk-tuks that buzz through the streets each day. Some people just basically take the tuk-tuk to work and back uh, on a daily basis. So it, it plays a major role in people's day-to-day -day lives. The name itself comes from the sound it makes while you drive it. It has three wheels, two at the back and one in the front. So three the most common name that we use in Sri Lanka is three-wheeler. So think about it kind of like a cross between a rickshaw and a golf cart, except it goes around 45 miles an hour and can handle the hilly and windy roads of Colombo. They're cheap and convenient and provide a dependable salary for their drivers. But they are horrible for the city's air quality. According to De Silva, you'd get a 1 million ton reduction in CO2 emissions if you converted just half of Sri Lanka's fleet of tuk-tuks into electric. And it's quite noisy, actually. It's one of the major contributors to noise pollution in the cities in Asian countries. So that's how the name came in. It's a sound that comes from a two-stroke engine. But of course, um, when it comes to this two-stroke tuk-tuk, if you compare a two-stroke and a four-stroke, four-stroke is you know, much environmentally friendly compared to a two-stroke. Both are harmful, but still comparatively. 
the Sri Lankan government actually put a ban on importation of two-stroke tuk-tuks. But still, then people were repairing these tuk-tuks. Some of these two-stroke tuk-tuks are still available on the roads. But back in 2012, De Silva had an idea. Take a two-stroke tuk-tuk, the model that's most common in Sri Lanka and happens to be the noisiest and most polluting, and try to convert it into electric. It was going to take a lot of engineering, since it had to be relatively affordable, and it had to perform better than a diesel-powered tuk-tuk, so that the drivers would be compelled to make the switch. Tinkering around is something De Silva has been doing his whole life. Well, uh, since I was little, I was quite passionate about building stuff. When I was in primary school, I got into developing small uh, circuits to do very basic stuff. The first one I did was the nitrider circuit, if you can remember the nitrider car. Uh, yeah. The Michael, yeah, the night rider car, the circuit where you have the front lighting array that there's a red light that moves from left to the right. That was the first one that I built. So from there, I just continued doing certain things with the electronics. Of course, I had a passion for automobiles since childhood. So while I started teaching, I wanted to improve my technical knowledge, specifically in electric vehicles, and wanted to carry out some research in that area. So we had this very old mini miner. So we converted that into electric. Somewhere in 2018, there was a request letter that came from the Ministry of uh, Environment asking them to support them with assessing the performance of a converted electric tuk-tuk and to analyze basically the technical feasibility. And then at that time, I had actually converted a tuk-tuk to electric for research purposes. So I tested for the technical feasibility. We managed to uh, build a powertrain basically a battery pack that was capable of making the tuk-tuk drive for about 110 kilometers per charge. But the only problem that came with this conversion was the cost factor. The battery pack, the motor, the controller, and the rest of the conversion method all came to about 2,500 US dollars. So the cost factor was there because a brand new tuk-tuk is about $5,000. So the cost of the conversion came to about half of the price of a brand new tuk-tuk. So the cost wow, factor, yeah. and yeah. So since then, I've been trying to uh, reduce the price. And of course, uh, with quantity, it can be brought down further. But it's a tough deal. You know, we are dealing with drivers who have already gone for leases, uh, you know, bank loans to get their tuk-tuks. It's very tricky when you're trying to sell something like this to a tuk-tuk driver because their income is hardly enough for them to manage their families. So it's, it's a very complex uh, situation, I would say. So I'm kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what inspired you to move your work in this direction. If it was knowing about climate change and the impacts of climate change, if it was about pollution issues, I'm just curious, like sort of what, what drove you in that direction personally? Well, during school days, it was just purely passion for engineering and you're building stuff. So I was just keen about that. And uh, this was not a subject that we discussed about back then. I, I think I came to be aware of that during or just after uni, I think. Uh, during my final year project, I actually came to get an in-depth understanding about the environmental impacts associated with transportation sector and manufacturing. How far along are you with the project? Like how many tuk-tuks have you been able to convert? Where do things stand? Now, basically, uh, the process is a little complex here in Sri Lanka uh, when it comes to registering vehicles and making it uh, road legal, roadworthy. We managed to convert two tuk-tuks, one two-stroke and one four-stroke. So that is where I am now. At the moment, I am discussing with the Department of Motor Traffic. We'll have to do the road testings 
And if everything goes fine, then I'll be able to introduce the conversion kit to the market. So you're in the prototype stage now, or like trying to get this like government approval to get them on the road. I mean, it obviously seems like an idea that has a lot of potential though. Tell me where you see things going with this. When we get an assurance of the reliability and its durability, we have a marketable powertrain. So there are two market options. One is conversion. When you look at conversions, as I said, the cost factor comes in. But when we look at a whole new tuk-tuk, it actually comes cheaper than uh, gasoline tuk-tuk. You, you can reduce uh, one-fifth of, of the cost of a gasoline tuk-tuk. So there's a lot of potential when building a business model when we go for a brand new electric tuk-tuk. And, and I know that you've been like, um, like working with drivers and talking with drivers. Like what's that? process been like do they have any like sort of curious questions about this are they at all skeptical of of this idea of of you know converting the engine of the machine that like is their like livelihood essentially right yeah i mean the majority of the tuk-tuk drivers here are the young crowd i mean they are from 20 to 30 or most of them i would say fall into under 40 so they are quite up to date about technology and they know about electric vehicles i mean i'm a regular user of uh, tuk-tuks here to go about. And uh, every time I get into a tuk-tuk, we start a chat and I talk to them about conversions and about electric vehicles. So they're very keen. So the first question they ask is how much it costs. How do you take this from being an idea and a prototype to being something that is the norm, like not just in Sri Lanka, but across Southeast Asia and like what support you would like to see internationally or in Sri Lanka um, that would help sort of like accelerate this transition? Well, as I said, uh, the major problem comes in with the lithium-ion battery. The battery alone comes to about two-thirds of the whole conversion cost. We don't have lithium-ion battery manufacturers here. Majority of the manufacturers are overseas. So one thing is that if we can get lithium-ion batteries for a cheaper cost, that would be one. Uh, then I think these kind of projects in uh, countries like ours will be more feasible. Have the drivers, the tuk-tuk drivers, been able to like test drive the converted vehicles that you've worked on? Yeah, yeah. we've got a number of drivers to rides on our tuk-tuks inside the university because some of our staff members have tuk-tuks. So we got them to drive and got their feedback, obviously, to have an idea about performance. Their comments are very constructive. I would what say. did they say? Uh, yeah, the actual acceleration is much better than uh, the gasoline engine. And the ride is much smoother because you don't have the vibrating engine. That's what mm. they said. Then uh, also the speed, of course, uh, we had electronically limited to 55 kilometers per hour. So uh, that is for safety, actually. Under Sri Lanka regulation, the top speed allowed for a tuk-tuk is 40. And now they're thinking of raising it to 50 because of the instability of this three-wheeled arrangement. But an actual gasoline engine that is on the road sometimes run up to about 70 kilometers per hour. Apart from that, they are very happy about the performance, uh, the acceleration, its capability to carry load. The three-wheel is built for three passengers and drive at the front, so altogether four people. And uh, when you put four people, it loses its capacity to climb hills effectively. They can still tackle it, but quite slowly. But uh, with the converted one, with the motor having a better torque, we actually managed to put six people inside it and do a nice hill climb without any trouble. So the 
torque is there, so the pulling power, the acceleration is there, so they're very happy about it. That's cool that the that the shake of the engine isn't there, and that that was like seen as a as a plus. Um, yeah. It's kind of cool. It made me wonder. This is like a totally silly question, but like if that sound of the tuk tuk, which is the origin of its name, right? Like the sound of that engine, if that goes away as they become electric, do you need a new name? Um, I mean, I mean, uh, in Sri Lanka, of course, they they still call it a three wheeler. That is the most common name. Right? But in other countries where they use tuk tuks, I think etuk. <laughs> I like that etuk. <laughs> yeah. And what's your own like sort of personal goal for your work? Like, what would you say is like sort of blue sky success? You know, is it electrifying like all the tuk-tuks in Sri Lanka? Is it going further than that? Like, tell me what your like sort of biggest dream is in relation to this. Of course, it's a good um, start. I would say if I can at least convert half the fleet of tuk-tuks in the country. But then I'm thinking of the bigger picture. So that's why I thought of uh, building a brand new one. So then the business model will be uh, more sustainable. So I'm, I'm thinking of uh, expanding this to other countries in the future, hopefully. I know in Sri Lanka, what we have is a good knowledge base. So we have the technical capacity and the knowledge to build an electric vehicle or a tuk-tuk or anything to, uh, to international standards where we are capable of selling it outside of the country. So that capacity is there. So you mentioned earlier that you were in school and it was kind of like later in your school when you started having a conversation about climate change and started really like thinking about that as a big picture issue. Like, tell me a little bit about what the conversation in Sri Lanka is like when it comes to the climate crisis right now. Is it a front of mind issue? How do you feel about it? How how do the drivers that you work with, how do they feel about it? We talk about that over the news as well. So I think uh, the majority of the population are aware of it. But um, actually, the Sri Lankan government is also very keen about uh, bringing down these uh, emissions produced by the transportation in the country. We signed the Paris Agreement and since then we have changes to these policies and we have set certain targets to achieve in certain timelines. One of the targets is to convert tuk-tuks to electric. So I know a lot of things are happening, even though we are still a developing country, we work really hard towards bringing down the GHG emissions that is produced by Sri Lanka. In the big picture, Sri Lanka isn't one of the, the biggest contributors to climate change. Like the, you know, the U.S. historically has been the biggest polluter, like China is the biggest annual polluter now. I guess, like, how do you think about your work and the work going on in Sri Lanka to reduce emissions in that sort of wider international context? I mean, uh, when you look at it, like this is a global problem. The emission that we produce here in Sri Lanka or the emissions that is produced in USA is not just going to be there, right? So no matter how much a country would contribute towards uh, these GSG emissions, we have to set an example and show that we are doing our part to at least control this global crisis to assure that there will be a better future for the generations to come. That's Sasiranga da Silva, lecturer at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Moratuwa, Sri Lanka. And like our first guest, Todd Watkins, who's leading the charge converting to electric school buses, he dreams of there being enough infrastructure to support mass conversions to electric. As we've seen, it's not just the engineering that has to be worked out, but the economics must shift too. And there's hope that the momentum is headed in the right direction. President Biden set to sign that executive order, setting a goal that by the year 2030, half of all cars sold in the U.S. would be hybrid or electric. It transforms our infrastructure. 
We're going to put Americans to work modernizing our roads, our highways, our ports, our airports, rail, and transit systems. According to the International Energy Agency, an estimated 145 million electric cars, buses, vans, and heavy trucks will be on the road by the year 2030. And the infrastructure to support those vehicles is also on the rise. In 2009, there were just 245 electric charging stations in the U.S. Ten years later, there were more than 20,000, and the numbers continue to rise. The scale isn't big enough to solve the climate crisis yet, but it does move us in the right direction. Next week on the show, how a kelp and oyster farmer in Connecticut is trying to get us to rethink what it means to have sustainable food systems. If you ask the ocean this really simple question, you're like, okay, what does it make sense to grow? The ocean says to you, why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Ross-Brow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Zimone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Interested in learning more in the run-up to COP26? We're offering free access to a foreign policy analytics team briefing called Firm Zero Emission Power. Normally, that's only available to FP Insider subscribers, but you can read the report for free by submitting your email. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash COP26 to learn more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>